This is the Criterion Creeps Podcast. I'm Jared Duncan. RJ Baylog? And we're just two guys who have no other choice now but to creep our way through the Criterion Collection one spine number at a time in order to release. This week, we're donning our best food court druid trench coats, smoking those cigarettes, mm-hmm. and driving to Jean-Luc Godard's Alphaville from 1965. But first, RJ. Hi. Hey. How are you? Yeah, I'm all right. How are you doing? Uh, doing good. I went to the dentist yesterday. My teeth are... You, are, are you uh, fucking kidding me? No. You know what I did today? What did you do? I went to the dentist. Whoa. Are you taking advantage of the end of the year uh, before the benefits rollover type deal? Yeah. Uh, as soon. Yeah, because I think within uh, the next three weeks, uh, I will no longer be under that university coverage. So it'll Ooh. stop. So I, I went in for um, a, uh, a final uh, answer the final solution mm-hmm. and uh, I got my teeth cleaned one one last time before I don't know if I'll have a coverage or benefits or a job even so uh, yeah that that, that uh, wasteland <laughs> yeah the unemployment wasteland mm-hmm so uh, tell me about your dentist experience and then I'll tell you about mine well uh, <laughs> this is exciting stuff uh, yep. I went to the dentist RJ and I have mm-hmm. been for several years because I did not have uh, coverage gross. And so um, I was expecting the, the pain to come, uh, mm-hmm. and they brought some mm, a little bit of pain, but it was actually not too bad. And my mouth feels great. I love yeah. uh, running my tongue across nice, clean, uh, detartard uh, teeth, and yeah. uh, it's wonderful. Icky. Yeah. And uh, hey, buddy, I'm cavity free. Are you really? Yep. You know, I have a lot of cavities all the time and I always have as a little kid because I'm just like a fatty who eats a lot of candy and when I was little I didn't brush my teeth very often Mm -hmm. but I also grind my teeth in my sleep and I (sighs) I feel like that develops the cavities a lot and it's like yeah I could wear a mouth guard but then I'd be a grade A dork and I don't want to be known as a dork okay only a dork in your sleep no one would know (laughs) I would know but you would know You'd be walking. The, you'd be walking the streets and people would be looking at you they'd know I Mm -hmm. guess too you'd be like he has a grinder Mm, you're gonna have to click the explicit box because this is the grossest episode we've ever ever done Uh um well that's good i'm glad you have no cavities yeah so i went to the dentist today yeah and uh my uh dental hygienist trent yes he is a male dental hygienist he uh flossed between my teeth and he got out some of those coffee stains and then uh, the dentist came and uh he he says the same thing every time Ooh, you got good teeth Okay, well, see you next year. Mm. So, they they all tell me I got good teeth. That's good. Which is cool. That's yeah. great. Good genetic hey, stock. Hey, did you know I have dental equipment stuck in my jaw from a uh, biffed uh, wisdom tooth job like six years ago? Yeah, I think you've mentioned that to me before. If anyone wants to see it, reach out to me online on the Twitter, and uh, I'll send you a picture of uh, what's inside of my face. Please do, people. I, I have an x-ray of it, so I can. Yeah, I think I've seen it. <laughs> yeah. Fun uh, stuff. Yep. So, so hey, uh, anyways, yeah. uh, you can guess what? I, tomorrow, I get to go to the optometrist and uh, get my eyes uh, peeked at and uh, mm-hmm. maybe a new prescription, get a new pair of glasses. Ooh. It's going to be Ooh. so, it's as exciting as it sounds. That sounds fancy, man. Mm-hmm. I have really good eyes. I have fifteen twenty, I think, or 2015, whatever's one better than 2020. 
2025? I don't know. No, it go, it actually it goes down. down. Okay. Yeah, it goes down. So I think it's like 2015 and then 2010 or something is like the best. But I think hmm. I have like 2015. The, I have the visual acuity of a bird of prey. Wow. I've been told. That's amazing. I'm blind as a bat. If uh, we did not yeah, have the creature dope. comforts of civilization, I would be long dead. I would be feasting on your bones. Yeah, you because I can see, and you have those amazing teeth, and I got those that good teeth line. Yeah, yeah. I can just chomp through them, bad boys. Awesome. Well, yeah. Enough about our like I don't know well being and shit. Uh, hey uh-huh. RJ, well, have you managed to creep on anything this week? I kind of. I did oh. creep on some stuff, but it's not something you're gonna like. Oh. Uh, yeah, I haven't had time to watch any movies, but uh, on the weekend. I uh, watched a, a television event with Andrea. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yep. Uh, so this was the Gilmore Girls revival, mm-hmm. the Netflix original, A Year in the Life. Uh, so uh, just to give you a little background, Andrea watched the Gilmore Girls last year sometime, like in the spring or something like that. Yep. And uh, I was usually like in the room while she was watching, like reading or doing something else. Um and I will say this, it is one of the better of those types of shows. Uh, she watched Dawson's Creek uh, just before, and that show is, like, unbearable, I think. It was really hard for me to, like, be in the room while that show was on because James Vanderbeek has such a huge forehead, and the stuff they do is just ridiculous. But uh, uh, I'll give Gilmore Girls a little bit of credit. I actually thought it wasn't that bad. Uh, the, so, the previous series. Yeah, the previous series. Yeah. So uh, this was a new one. It was uh, four one and a, one and a half hour episodes, and uh, it was called "A Year in the Life" because each episode was a different season. It was winter, spring, summer, fall, uh, and it picks up ten years after it ends. The main TV show ends with uh, the girls, uh, the younger girl Rory, going off or just finishing college and going off on her own, and then uh, this one picks up ten years later. She. Uh, kind of finished her run as like a a journalist on campaign trails and she's just looking for a job and Lorelai is there and all the favorite all your favorites Jer Luke (laughs) he's back Dean he's back Jess is there everyone was there huh um (laughs) yes uh there's gonna be someone out there who watches this show that will be like yeah you're sure you were sure right they were all back um, Melissa McCarthy was there for like 20 seconds. So that was fun. Hmm. <laughs> um, yeah, it was fine. Uh, I don't know if it was completely necessary, but, uh, it was better than a lot of those other revivals that are like, like the Arrested Development one, which was just a stain on that series, I think. But, yeah. Uh, I, yeah. Arrested Development season four was, uh. Not the best. Um, no, it was weird. Like I remember, like really being apologetic about it at the time. I think we mm-hmm. all might have been been like, yeah, you know, it was really ambitious, and I, re- I really had yeah. a great idea. But I think time has not been kind to it. Yeah. Uh, no. I, when I was a big fan of the the series, the franchise, and then when that came out, I just I remember just being really disappointed inside. Mm-hmm. But that's what happens when you have ten plus years of build up for something, and it's never going to live up to it. Um, so you, I guess this one, yeah, for Gilmore Girls, nobody was expecting it. Um, so I guess it didn't have any like build up, and 
it was pretty good. Like I, I felt like the show ended with you didn't really need any more closure, but this was kind of a nice a nice step back into the world of Stars Hollow, Jarrett. Wow. So uh, <laughs> I would say if you're a fan of the show, check it out. Outstanding. That's my creeping. Um, yeah, I mean, the one thing that comes to my mind is like, are you trying to tell me that the Twin Peaks uh, revival is not going to live up to people's expectations? Um, that one might, if uh, every episode is just David Lynch cooking quinoa. Ah, yes. And it's not actually a Twin Peaks thing, it's just him cooking quinoa in every episode. And he duped America. And he just <laughs> stole stole the TV company's millions. Mm. And he'll just put the bumper for Twin Peaks at the start and he'll be like, this is exactly what I intended 15, 20 years ago when the show ended. Yeah, when I saw Jim Belushi's like in the show, I don't know. <laughs> That show's got like a fucking million people. Like Eddie yeah. Vedder from Pearl Jam is gonna be in there. Like oh. it's insane. There's huh. so many people. Uh, well, we'll see. Um, yeah, so people know I'm a big David Lynch fan, and it's probably the one thing I'm actually looking forward to uh, next year. It is. Like, what else you is there? To look, what else is there to look forward to? Have you not heard of the revival of Man versus Food? Where the guy just goes into eating competitions. There's a revival. Did it actually? I don't know. I, I assume that it was always on. Um, I don't know. I don't have cable anymore, so I can't speak to it. But uh, what I meant is, when we go out to lunch together, you're gonna see your own. You're gonna see my own personal man versus food. Oh, you're just gonna eat like a big fat piece of shit. Well, yeah, I'll be unemployed. I'll have nothing else to hold mm-hmm. to with ground a, me to this world with rotten teeth. Mm-hmm. So great. Fun times. Mm-hmm. What have you been creeping on? Well, RJ, uh, I checked out one of your picks uh, from <gasps> October. Uh huh. What I was watched, that? Uh, Wishmaster Two. Oh yeah. Yeah, and uh, RJ, I, I feel like you lied to me when you said that this that was a pretty good movie because that movie is not very good. <laughs> uh, uh, I I don't. I don't know if I said it was good. I think I, I do remember saying I think you would like it because yeah. it was a prison movie. So yeah. I guess I was wrong. Whatever. Yeah. Whatever. No, <laughs> not whatever. That movie. Oh, my dude. So whenever uh, Andrew <laughs> Devov wasn't or Devov, whatever the hell his name is, whenever Divis? he Divis, yeah, whenever he wasn't on the screen, boy, this movie stunk to high heaven. Um, yeah. Yeah. So back you there. You don't like and, that romance side plot with the priest? Oh. Yeah, no, no, I didn't, RJ. Um, it was just it's like it's so strange. Like when you watch something and it's like so inert, and it's just two characters yeah. talking, and it's like sometimes it works, and like you don't know why it works, and then when you watch it, it fail so miserably, and it's like really hard to put your finger on like what point uh, it went wrong. Like was it the casting? Is it the direction? Is it the screenplay? Um, it's just it's impossible to tell. But there's just so much of it um, of like non. Uh, Wishmaster in prison stuff that it just started getting really mm-hmm. frustrating because the stuff was just like awful, way too much of yeah. that. Um, there's like only like really one or two like kind of inventive uh, Wishmaster deaths. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the highlight was just the guy getting pushed through the prison bars. The bars. That, yeah. That was it which, though. Like, which honestly it doesn't even make sense because uh, he's like, "Why don't you wish to just walk out of here?" And he's like, "Yeah, I would like to walk out of here." And he's like, "Okay." And then he like pushes his skin through the bars. Like that's not what he wished for at all. No. Not good. <laughs> well, okay. Well, I guess this is the one and only time I've steered you wrong. One and only um, time. Uh, not like 
Yeah, sorry. Oh, sorry. Anyway, so the, the companion piece to my Wishmaster 2 viewing was another sequel to another uh, classic film franchise, and that's American Ninja 2, The Confrontation. Um, yeah, so Mike Dudikoff, he's back in action. Um, and this time he's fighting. It's like kind of like the plot of uh, of You Do a Kill, like involving mutants and like or super mutants and they're ninja super mutants and they're being raised on an island and Dudikoff just happens to be uh, deployed there to replace disappearing marines, even though he's uh, hmm. army rangers. Um, and I don't know what more I can say about this movie other than uh, it's got the same problem as American Ninja where it's like relatively bloodless. Like guys are just getting slashed with swords Mm -hmm. left and right and being killed. But there's like no blood uh, other than like sparing amounts of uh, like just a little bit of makeup on close-ups. But that's it. So every time I'm expecting like geysers of blood and like canon action movies to live up to my expectations, especially with ninjas, they never do. Um, But this movie is definitely the dark knight of the American Ninja franchise. Um, mm-hmm. because it has a scene that, uh, I've never, it's never been spoiled for me before. I've never seen like a YouTube isolated clip of just this sequence, but, uh, there's a part where, uh, they're escaping from, I don't know, a bunch of ninjas attack them in town. And one ninja happens to like, uh, hop onto their hood of their car and like, hold on. And then he gets just tossed off. But then it's mm-hmm. like, Oh, now he's got a grappling hook and now he's grappled onto the, onto their truck and he's going to keep going after them. And it's just like a, a marvel of stunt work as this poor bastard is just drug, like legit drug mm-hmm. for way too long. And you can see like the clothing that he's wearing is just deteriorating. And you can start seeing like the knees are getting scraped up to this guy legitimately. Um, he manages mm-hmm. to make his way back onto the truck, hops onto it, just smashing his fist through glass. Um, and just carnage uh, breaks out as, like, the poor, like, so it's Dudikoff and, like, the love interest, I guess, and a kid. Yeah. They're also in the cab with uh, him, and this ninja is attacking them. And they're like, oh, no, we got to bail out now. And so you can just see, like, the whoever the stunt woman was playing uh, the love interest, she just takes a horrible header out of this car. Dudikoff jumps out this little kid that's like now a grown man jump out of this vehicle and it's like rough because like they're I think they're shooting it in South Africa um as a stand-in for like the Caribbean um and then this <laughs> like goddamn ninja and this truck goes driving into a bunch of like containers into a building and it just explodes hilariously like because they've just loaded this thing with gasoline and it's yeah. just like everything you kind of want from an American ninja movie uh is in that one moment and like you can't help but just burst out laughing because it's like perfect bad dumb action movie uh chore- choreography and staging um but other than that, that's about the highlight of the film. It knocked it up a star for me uh, for that mm-hmm. sequence. But other than that, uh, it sounds like I think the American Ninja movies just continue to get worse and worse. Um, mm-hmm. So I think I, I'm, I personally am going to leave it there. Uh, the, the, the American Ninja films can just lie there and be themselves, and I'll be mm-hmm. elsewhere. I like how you say it's like it's everything you'd want in one of those movies. Like other people have actually thought about this stuff. No one else has ever been like, hmm, American Ninja. It's everything I could have wanted. <laughs> there's, I think I bet you I could find some reviews. I bet you there's people um, that really like... Uh, I'm sure you could find reviews, but... Uh, <laughs> what, are you, what are you trying to say? Uh, you're a weirdo. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. Mm, well, anyways. Anyways. Well, 
Uh, I'm glad that you have fun with ninja movies. Um, I'm probably never going to watch them, though, but I'm glad you're doing it. Yep, I'll I'll take the ninja movies. You can take the Mel Gibson. Ooh, I think I'm coming out on top on that one. Uh, I don't know. Uh, yeah, so I actually uh, hopped ahead a little bit on my Criterion viewing because I uh, was pretty listless the other day. Had no idea. I was like, what am I going to watch? Uh, couldn't make up my mind. Then I saw, hey, I've got this sealed copy of the Blood Simple Criterion I just got a few weeks ago. And yeah. I haven't watched Blood Simple in a long time. So I watched that movie again. And mm-hmm. spoilers for like seven or ten years from now when we would get to it in our chronology. But Blood Simple mm-hmm. is just amazing. Hey, Jer. Yeah. I've never seen Blood Simple. Wow. And you're a uh, wow. bad person. That's, that's Yeah, you're a bad person. Uh, yeah, Blood Simple is like goddamn amazing. For those who don't know, it's the Coen mm. Brothers' first movie. It's their uh, theatrical debut or their feature-length first thing, and uh, like it's all there, all the pieces of like what they're going to do for like the rest of their career when they do like mm-hmm. kind of the crime stuff and like the camera work. It's just it, they already were doing it right from the get-go. Um, yeah. Barry Sonnenfeld is their cinematographer, who you might recall as the director of the classic film uh, Adam's Family and Adam's Family Ooh. Values. I'm down with that. I bet you are. And don't forget I'm... Men in Black. <laughs> oh, fuck yeah. The first one? All of them. Yeah. Yeah. And, oh shit, he also directed RV starring Robin Williams, filmed in our hmm. very own backyard. I was going to say, that, uh, yeah, that happened here. Yeah. Pretty neat. Pretty neat. Yeah, it's got uh, John Getz, uh, who's the bearded man in the Fly remake, and mm-hmm. uh, M. Emmett Walsh and Dan Hedaya, my boy. Uh, yeah, and Frances McDermott, her first film, Joel Cohen's wife, and she's hmm. uh, very good. Uh, yeah, no, like that movie, I don't know. You have to watch it, I guess, sometime. Um, oh, when, I know. When, I you, will. when you do your uh, Cohen Brothers. I don't know. Walk, work through those Cohen brothers because you have to watch Raising Arizona for your uh, John Goodman uh, viewing as well. Well, I've seen Raising Arizona, but you probably should watch it again. I, I was gonna rewatch it. Yeah, yeah. that's probably okay. like yeah, yeah. Blood Simple is awesome. I can't wait to watch it again. Like I said, seven to ten years from now. <laughs> seven to ten years. Well, yep. at least you're. Uh, at least you set goals. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, I guess that brings us to news. Snooze? Um, snooze. Snooze? And, uh, sure. well, I have nothing to talk about because I've been busy, RJ. But I hear <sighs> that you might have some items to bring to the forefront. I, I do, actually. I have two bits of news for you, Jared. Okay. Did you know that today, November 30th, 2016, James Delagotti, the inventor of the Big Mac, has passed away at 98 years old. Um, I think this is a big hit for everyone. I think uh, he had a lot of good ideas for bread inside of other bread. Um, have you ever had a Big Mac? Are you interested in the Big Macs? Does this news sadden you? You know, I've actually never eaten a Big Mac in my life. <laughs> Are you fucking kidding me? No. God, you're a weirdo. You've never had a Big Mac? No. What the fuck? I was like joking, but no. now I'm like actually concerned for you. Nope, never have. Well, you know what you can do too, because here, like, I think this some some states in America are starting to get this. But I remember when I lived in Colorado, they had never heard of it. Um, but in Canada, you can get a double Big Mac, which has four patties and uh, three pieces of 
bun. So uh, I think what you should do is abandon your whole health kick thing that you're doing that nobody really knows why anyways and uh, go get a double Big Mac and uh, just, you know, enjoy your life, man. Uh, I'm good. <laughs> okay, so your your I guess your take on this is uh, good riddance. Indi- you deserved it. Uh, complete and total indifference. <laughs> but hey, for a guy who invented uh, a big fatty burger like that, he lived almost 100 years. That's pretty good. Yeah, it's not bad. Do you think he was eating Big Macs? Uh, he invented them in his kitchen, I heard. Uh, maybe. Yeah. Maybe he was. Maybe, Or maybe he learned his lessons. Mm. Uh, uh, you know what's funny is uh, awesome. my uh, friend Lawrence today, he actually pointed something out. Uh, if you go into Google and you type in how many calories in a Big Mac, it uh, brings up a chart there. It says a Big Mac is 257 calories. This is Ooh. quite misleading, though, because uh, that is based on a quantity of 100 grams, which mm-hmm. is not the total like uh, yep. weight of it because it's actually like 219 grams, which mm-hmm. actually means that it's 563 calories. But hey, if, when you just type that into Google, it tells you it's like half that. So, hey, that's a potential lawsuit because I had just heard that down in the, the United States of America, people were suing Chipotle, the burrito maker, mm-hmm. because they had a burrito on there for 300 calories and it was like being sold as like the slim burrito or something, but it wasn't. It was like 600 calories. No, and all these people oh, were getting fat or something. Yeah. Okay. So actually I did read about that one. So what happened yeah. was you would go in and they have like a, it's like a chorizo uh, burrito and it just says like the chorizo burrito and like underneath it just says 300 calories. And so people would make the assumption, hey, that's how many calories they're saying this is. So that's good for me. Mm-hmm. But I mean, if you stop and think about it and actually understand like how many calories are in food, you would realize that that's impossible. And uh, in reality, it's like, no, they were just like apparently stating that the chorizo meat on your burrito is 300 calories. And in fact, when you actually put this whole gigantic thing together, it's like a thousand calories. Um, So, I mean, yeah, I think they're like Chipotle is totally in the wrong on that front because this is like right in there, like on the billboard thing in the Mm -hmm. store, like advertising the thing. And it's like, yeah, you could see that and totally understand why the guy would read that and say that's false advertising because it is. Mm -hmm. Um, This isn't really like false advertising because this is just Google bringing up like a wacky like non McDonald's mm-hmm. chart that just has like this information that I'm sure like, I'm not sure how it looks like on a mobile device, but yeah. I can see people being uh Oh, great. I can eat two of these now. <laughs> well, that's the impression I got. So I'm going to go start slapping down big Macs. And, uh, when, uh, the pain train rolls around and I put on, uh, another 50, uh, you better believe the CEO is going to be getting a call. They'll be hearing from you. And this will from- not, and this episode will not be used as evidence. No, uh, no, don't even put this out. Okay. Um, but I have some actual real news for you. Okay. Hey, Jarrett. Yeah. Do you like horror science fiction? I could take it or leave it. Do you like dystopian futures? Uh, I do. Do you like vampires? Uh, eh, sometimes. Uh, do you like books? Uh, when I can read, yes. Okay. Um, well, this just in. Uh, the movie, uh, the attempts to make a movie have been abandoned. It is going to television, and that is the an adaptation of Justin Cronin's The Passage, mm. a book that I have talked about before, yep. a book that I enjoy quite a bit, that Jared Francois Fillmore Duncan does not enjoy. 
Um, the reason I bring it up is because it was film rights got bought up real fast and like i remember at one point ridley scott was gonna make a big trilogy of movies and stuff like that so like there was potentially gonna be a big movie franchise about this whole this whole deal but it never came through and everyone's been asking for 10 years now almost where's that passage movie so now it's gonna go to the tv uh there's three people gonna run it liz heldens from uh, who made Friday Night Lights, which was actually a pretty good show. Uh, Matt Reeves, who made Felicity, which I've heard is good. And this guy named Scott Free, which I didn't know, but he's involved in uh, the Philip K. Dick adaptation, The Man in the High Castle, mm -hmm. which I've heard is good. Uh, the upcoming uh, Tom Hardy TV show, Taboo, which I've heard is really good, even though you hate Tom Hardy. And then also, this is another book I've talked about, and I know you actually like. Uh, he's also involved in the upcoming adaptation of Dan Simmons' The Terror. So this guy's got his hands in all sorts of book adaptations. All those um, guys. Yeah, and I think actually, like, this works better as a TV series, so I think that's good. Um, it is going to Fox, which isn't great, but maybe if it goes to, like, FX. FX has pretty good shows, so that would be cool. What do you think? Are you interested in the passage at all? Well, RJ, allow me to read you the first paragraph from Justin Cronin's The Passage. It's out of context. We, no, this is literally the first paragraph of the oh, book. No. This is chapter one. And this is as far as I read into the book. <clears throat> Before she became the girl from nowhere, the one who walked in, the first and last and only, who lived a thousand years, she was just a little girl in Iowa named Amy. Amy Harper Belafonte. And that's as far as I got into the book. And when I, when I made the hasty decision to go, that, this is not for me. Um, you, you never even gave it a chance, man. I did. I gave it a chance. You, you, read, you read like two lines. <laughs> yeah, I did. And okay, well, uh, I, you'll watch the TV show, won't you? Uh, nope. Not even the pilot? Nope. There's all, RJ, there's so many good TV shows that I've never watched that I would rather watch than watch this show. What if it's a good TV show? What if it's the next Game of Thrones? The next uh, Sopranos? It won't be. What if it's the next um, Chicago MD? Uh, <laughs> Chicago MD? Whatever. I don't know. Chicago Hope? <laughs> sure. Chicago Fire Department. Oh, One of those fucking Chicago shows. Yeah. Nope, sorry, man. Doesn't uh, not in, not on my radar. Well, I don't care. I I think it'll be cool. I like those books. Okay. So, so you're that's allowed. You up yours, man. Up mine. <laughs> yeah. Stephen King's a fan. Yeah, Stephen King's a fan of anything if you put it in front of him. Yeah, not us. I don't think he's a fan of that Donald Trump though. No, nah, not that guy either. No. Speaking of Stephen King, I heard today that uh, the new It Man, uh, Hugo Weaving, was going to be uh, Pennywise in that It remake. The new It Man? He was going to be <laughs> Yeah, the It Man. Because uh, he was in Heartbreak Ridge and everyone's talking about it. Oh, he's, he's the It Man? It's like, oh, I, yeah. I, I thought that he was the It Man like in, in 1999. <laughs> yeah, he was. But uh, apparently they were going to do, uh, they were going to put him as Pennywise, which seems is, weird. Is he back on the map? Well, with Heartbreak Ridge, he is. Oh, see, my my dream... or not Hacksaw, no. Hacksaw Ridge. Yeah, about fifteen years ago, my dream project was uh, Hugo Weaving as Namor the Submariner, 
and mm. he would and he would do it exactly like the uh, way Jack Kirby drew him, just like yeah. green speedo and little winged feet. Awesome. Um, and that would have been my my dream film, and I it's not happening. So. Well, what did you do to fuck that up? Uh, I, I, wrong place. Wrong Mayways. place, wrong time. Yeah. You got no motivation. No no hustle. How? No sizzle to this steak. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, anyways, that was fun. That was that. That's the podcast forever. Sweet. Well, I guess uh, that's out of the way. I guess we have a movie to talk about. Sure. So after the break, we're going to be talking about a little place called Alphaville. Quelque chose ne tournait pas rond dans la capitale de cette galaxie. Qu'est-ce qu'ils ont fait Ils ont été condamnés. C'est le professeur von Braun qui a organisé tout ça. Nous ne savons rien. Vous menacez la sécurité. Je ne trahirai jamais les faits extérieurs. Dès que je suis avec vous, j'ai peur. Vous avez peur de quoi Les hommes de votre espèce n'existeront bientôt plus. Vous allez devenir quelque chose de pire que la mort. Vous allez devenir une légende, monsieur Lemikoshi. And we're back and talking about Alphaville from 1965, directed by Jean-Luc Godard. It's spine number 25 in that Criterion collection. A little bit of a synopsis. Secret agent Lemmy Caution, played here by Eddie Constantine, has been sent into Alphaville to locate and bring back or terminate one Professor Von Braun, formerly Professor Nosferatu. Uh, 
it let me caution. Uh, he rolls into town under the guise of being a journalist named Ivan Johnson and checks into this supposedly futuristic automaton city that is really just post-war Paris amongst the backdrop of its then-new modernist architecture. Um, his first job is to contact missing agent uh, Henry Dixon, who is already in Alphaville. Um, and as far as what Alphaville is, uh, as best as I can explain, it's sort of a techno rogue state that has situated mm-hmm. itself in the world or as it, or its own galaxy, as in the vocabulary of the film. I'm never actually quite sure. Uh, yeah. And it's basically in what they refer to as the outland, which is everything else, which includes such cities as Nouveau York and uh, Tokyo Rama. Um, everything in Alphaville mm-hmm. is run uh, centrally by a supercomputer called Alpha 60, um, as I guess built and designed by Professor Von Braun. Um, and in its uh, bid to streamline humanity, uh, it eliminates pesky things such as love, poetry, illogic, what it considers illogical, and uh, replacing things like the question of why with simply because. Um, but uh, Bibles have become dictionaries, um, mm-hmm. and it's got an ever-changing vocabulary uh, just to, and as it needs to, to kind of uh, change humans' uh, uh, unpredictability, I guess. Um, so let me caution is given a assistant handler while he's in Alphaville, uh, named Natasha Von Brown, who is the daughter of professor Von Brown. And she's played by Anna Karina. Um, and she is, uh, has no memory of anything but Alphaville, even though she was born in the outlands and would have lived with her father before he was exiled from the outland. Uh, and then he came to, I guess, develop Alphaville. Uh, from there, we basically follow caution through his trials and tribulations uh, while in the city. Along the way, um, Alphaville is revealed to us. He finds the missing agent, Dixon, who has become enveloped in Alphaville's system of drugging you up and giving you trained prostitutes to subdue you until you basically decide to kill yourself. Um, yeah. <laughs> he is shown uh, by <laughs> Natasha uh, the way in which rebellion is quashed. Um, and that is through a firing squad in front of a swimming pool where you are then finished off by female synchronized death squads, um, mm-hmm. which are, yeah, it's just women who all jump off uh, into the pool with uh, hunting knives and they stab you to death. Um, mm-hmm. Caution. Isn't gets, that what it happens now? For uh, punishment? It, it could very soon. Uh, caution gets face to face with. Professor Von Braun after seeing one of these executions uh, before he can kind of do what he's been sent there to do he's jumped by uh, Von Braun's goons tossed around in an elevator taken in for questioning um, we get our first uh, interaction interrogation with caution against uh, Alpha 60's interrogation system um, he's able to keep aloof of the questioning and is released he meets back up with natasha who is creepily waiting back at his hotel room and here we find out the depths of reprogramming and rewriting that people undergo in this stop in this dystopic city um, caution wants to bring her out of the city uh before it gets blown up which is kind of like offhandedly referred to in the movie mm-hmm. um that's just going to get nuked i guess uh, but before they can really figure out how that's going to go, Alpha 60 has sent goons to rearrest Caution as it's deduced that Lemmy Caution is not what he appears, but is a secret agent there to screw things up. Um, mm-hmm. On his second interrogation, Caution plants the seed of Alpha's unraveling via the old Captain Kirk way of dealing with computers, which is mm-hmm. introducing a conundrum, uh, in this case, poetry, uh, and is able to escape. 
but now Caution is pissed and just starts lighting people up. He <laughs> makes a cop take him to Von Brown's headquarters. He kills the cop, goes into the headquarters, finds Brown, offers him a chance to come with him. Von Brown refuses. Caution kills him. And then Caution continues killing more dudes. Uh, he goes back to the Alpha 60 headquarters, grabs Natasha, who's been there, and I guess in the process of being uh reprogrammed uh all the inhabitants of alphaville are all of a sudden brain dead mutant zombie things stumbling around and at the end of the day rj love prevails Mm -hmm. so uh i'm gonna throw it to you rj um when you hear the word french cinema or i guess the words the the expression french cinema what, what does that make you think of french cinema makes me think of people on bikes with baguettes in their baskets with uh, accordions and flute music and uh, just kind of biking around the Eiffel Tower. And then uh, eventually they get launched into orbit because that's what French people do. Hmm. Uh, I do not think of Alphaville. Okay. (laughs) However, uh, I think I should start uh, because if more French films are like this, that would be neat. Hmm. Uh, I have a question for you. Yeah. Uh, was Godard like a heavy mescaline user or what's his deal? What is Godard's deal? Yeah. Well, if, if that's a bigger thing you, you're going to talk about later, I can just gloss uh, over well, that. Can... I'm just using that as a framing device for my take on this movie. Okay. Well, you know what? I can, I can answer that. Well, I can, yeah. you ask me questions and I can answer them. Sure. Um, this book, so this movie really inspired me to like, I don't know, to kind of go to my way and read more about it because, sure. uh, so this Criterion DVD, it's out of print. Um, I happened to, mm-hmm. I bought a copy actually from a video store going out of business a few years ago. Um, and it's a really uh, underwhelming package. There's like no commentary track. There's like no special features. I think maybe mm-hmm. the, the trailer is on there. Um, but like even like the the essay that comes with it, it's uh, by Andrew Saris, who is actually the American film critic who really picked up on the French New Wave stuff first. Like so, he was like mm-hmm. ahead of the curve, and he was a big proponent for Godard. Um, but actually, I didn't really like the essay, and it didn't really give me much information that I could talk about. So I mm-hmm. uh, realized I work at a university, and we have a library on campus, and I'm like, hey, I should go see if there's any books on Godard on uh, on those. Sh- uh, shelves and sure enough there were several so i signed some out and i did some homework rj so i Hot feel prepared damn. today like no other previous week to talk mm-hmm. about me some jean-luc godard so right. uh so to talk about what the where the fuck uh old uh jail g j l g yeah wherever he's mm-hmm. coming what's where's he coming from so, Where's he coming from? Yeah, so within the first few minutes of this movie, we are introduced to what some would call the Godardian aesthetic. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you get strange edit choices, unconventional blocking and uh, revealing of characters on the screen, cuts to graphics and flashing neon signs, um, close-ups of actors staring directly at us, delivering poetic expressions rather than, like, conventional dialogue, introspective yeah. voiceovers, um bombastic scores that seem to be almost at odds with what you're watching, but Mm -hmm. they feel right, but they're off. Uh, Fragmented action scenes, if you wouldn't even want to call them those. Uh, Mm -hmm. People just talking in apartments for long chunks of time. But, I mean, that's kind of... uh, I mean, Godard was kind of the most radical part of, like, kind of the French New Wave uh, of filmmaking. Mm -hmm. Uh, I was going to say, like... uh, 
I don't think I should have to recap the French New Wave for people. I think that if they nah. want to know more about that, they can listen to the 400 Blows episode where mm-hmm. I kind of uh, explained it there. But, uh, yeah, so, I mean, this is the first, like, Godard movie in the Criterion Collection in our uh, creep through it. And, uh, mm-hmm. I mean, he's going to pop up again. Um, so it's, I think Alphaville is kind of a weird movie for it to be kind of where it is. Cause that's like one of the weird things with doing it, the, the show, the way we're doing it is going by spine number. Like we're not doing like episodes on Godard and then watching like mm-hmm. his films in chronological order. We're watching the movies as they kind of emerge, uh, right. and like how they were selected at the time. So, I mean, coming off of films like Dead Ringers, Summertime, Robocop and High and Low, this is totally different. Um, and mm-hmm. I think that even in the time period that this movie came out in, it was different than what other stuff was doing. Cause that was sort of like what guard, uh, Godard was actually actively doing. Um, right. so I guess like to go back to what you were asking, like what, what's Godard's deal? Like, what did, what did you take away from this? Like, what did, what, what was your feeling? What was your first watch of this? Like, cause I've seen this before. Um, and, uh, so this was a rewatch for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay, so uh, I'll lay it out there for you. Yeah. Um, I thought uh, this movie was very unique. I thought, <laughs> and I don't, I don't mean that in a bad way. I, I mean, like, honestly, it was unique. Yeah. Um, I really enjoyed it, but I can't say that I fully understood everything that was going on in it. And it might have been because I watched it late last night and I was tired. It might just be that I'm a big dumb dumb. <laughs> I don't know, but like, cause like I understand the themes that they were getting at mm-hmm. and like stuff like that, but it was more about like, I think he takes some liberties and gets into that art house realm with certain things where he plays around with like the sound design and then like the film and editing, like he cuts to negative and stuff like that, or he'll do a thing where it'll be like, boop, 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 boop. And it'll be like the close up of a person and be like, love is pain and then be like boop 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 and be like pain is love it'd be like something you would see like in a coffee house now and like i don't blame him for that it's because like other people made that stuff gross like people that are alive now not old people um but anyways um i actually i really liked it uh it looks great um it's very unique like i said it's interesting um, I just can't lie and say that I fully understand it there. Okay. And I, I couldn't even tell you like what it is. I don't like, I do understand the themes they're getting at. I understand kind of like, I understand the story he's trying to tell. Um, there are just certain elements where I'm just like, I don't know what's going on. But, uh, yeah, I think like the big parts are like his sound design, his editing and like the way he, the way he plays around with film, I think. Right. Uh, the one thing I noticed right away is like this really reminded me of um, Brave New World by Aldous Huxley. Have you ever read that? Yes. Yeah. So yeah. It's just like with the idea of like there being that super organized high tech society and then like a far out from that is like the Outlands or in Brave New World. It's just like the Barrens or whatever where all the yeah. savages live. But it's like the people who aren't genetically manufactured and like stuff like that. So it reminded me of that. And people um, pop in the somas. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So um, I thought about that. I thought that was really cool. Um, I will say one other thing. Let me ca- uh, caution is probably 
the coolest character in the world. Uh, he shoots a Zippo for it to light, which mm-hmm. is like unbelievable. Um, I love how casually he does things like breaking through doors and killing people. Like it's so funny when uh, Alpha 60 is like, you'll never make it out of here. He's like, oh, yeah. And then, like, the next scene, you just see the door explode, and then he just shoots people. And oh, he's just walking yeah. around shooting people. And oh, he'll shoot them, like, six times. And he, like, won't even – his expression won't even change. His, like, cadence won't even change. He'll just, like, keep walking by shooting motherfuckers. Uh, there's also – this has the coolest fight scene ever. As you, I think what you called it what, – what did you say? Defra- defragmented? Something like that. <laughs> something like that where it's just like the fight scene itself is all in stills um i thought that was amazing Mm -hmm. uh that seems like something wes anderson would try to steal nowadays Mm -hmm. um that was super cool i'm glad you Uh, liked that i was kind of curious what your uh, take on those that would be because that's like one of like probably the most memorable things in this movie for me that like i remembered specifically like because alphaville for me was kind of a vague memory but also was like yeah it's got that action scene in it (laughs) and it's it's, because it's like eight frames and or it's mm -hmm. on eight frames but it's like eight like at moments and it's like mm-hmm. that's what an action scene is and it's just like funny too considering like after we've watched like John Woo's action movies yeah. and we've watched Paul Verhoeven's action movies which are just like these like high watermarks of like yeah. uh, cinematography or uh, choreography of action and this is just like well we're gonna strip that all right out like right down to its bone yeah I, I like how like uh, like it's almost like come intentionally like ridiculous because oh, yeah. <laughs> the, the way it plays out is like it's non-sequential like it doesn't add up like the first shot is him closing the window on the guy's head yep. and then the next shot is him like getting the guy in an arm bar yeah getting him and, control yeah <laughs> yeah and then it's like a headlock and then the, and then the last shot is like that him driving over the guy's oh, you, head you and it's the just full, like, there's, there's a full nelson too there's a okay yeah that that was what i called the headlock is yeah. a the full nelson yeah um yeah i just <laughs> when that played like a big a big grin just came on my face because it's like that's so fun <laughs> and then he just drives like, over his head <laughs> and then he drives over his head which is fucking yeah. amazing yeah like, he, he just starts dropping people <laughs> yeah so that was really cool um, um so I, I this will be a good point for me to throw in so one thing i didn't know uh, until uh i rewatched it the first time because i actually watched this movie twice for uh this episode yeah. rj you sure um did. and the first time i watched this i didn't actually realize that lemmy caution is actually a pre-existing character um he's hmm. in he's uh, in from yeah what so he's a he's a so he's an FBI agent created by a British writer named Peter Cheney, uh, and he wrote ten caution novels between 1936 and 1945. Mm-hmm. Um, there isn't anything like particularly stand out about the stories, but in post-war France, I guess like France just like they loved American culture, mm-hmm. which like totally makes sense especially when you watch like think of like Godard movies like he loved like American film, um, right. and so like what happened was. Uh, uh, they even like would like they were so into America they would even be like into books about American characters but were actually written by a British policeman. <laughs> um, sure. Yeah, and so like yeah, the novels were popular enough in France that like fr- French movie companies like made several movie adaptations with such mm-hmm. uh, titles as Poison Ivy, Dames Ooh. Get Along, This Ooh. Man Is Dangerous, Women Are Dangerous. Um, and so, and in these, uh, so these, and then when they started making the Lemmy Caution movies kind of through the fifties and even into the early sixties, uh, they were all played by Eddie Constantine. Hmm. Um, and so I guess, uh, 
Eddie Constantine was booked into a situation where he was going to work with Godard on something, and Godard, uh, Godard was trying to figure out what that was going to be. Because initially, uh, and I thought this was uh, really crazy, um, mm-hmm. I guess that he started off wanting to make a uh, an adaptation of I Am Legend. <laughs> Um, really yeah he, was he, that out at this time like yeah. didn't i am legend come out in like 1960 some well this is 65 and so i mean huh. it would have been yeah like a couple of years earlier but yeah, okay that's where it started off as like i i'd never read, heard that before that's in the uh, richard brody book uh, uh Everything was that cinema mm-hmm. was that before the omega man then i guess yes. probably it would have been uh god even just before uh, uh last man on earth hmm. um, weird yeah. So yeah. So eventually, like so the Alphaville project, it started off as yeah. He he wanted to do an I Am Legend thing. His producer was like, "Nope, I have no interest. Yeah. In, we have no interest in doing that." Because I think he probably also figured that like Godard couldn't can't make this movie the way that he wants to do it. Um, right. So yeah, I guess the thing to fold back onto too is the mention that like so, uh, Godard's first feature film, which is Breathless. So that came mm-hmm. out in 1960, and Alphaville came out in 1965. But Alphaville is already his ninth feature film. Um, Weird. <laughs> and he he had also made about in, in that period of time also like nine short films. So the hmm. guy was just making movies constantly. Yeah. Um, and I guess like uh, one of the things that he f- he wanted to make a science fiction movie, uh, right. and so and like I think it was like 1964 at the Venice Film Festival, Godard was told by Michelangelo Antioni, another uh, Criterion uh, director, we'll be talking about one day. Uh, I guess he was he had like was telling Godard about like talking with some like cybernetic engineers about artificial intelligence and I guess like mm. Godard was like oh yeah that sounds great and he combined it with this Brian Aldiss <laughs> book that he was uh, interested in um, right. I mean it was all kind of like trying to get into like yeah like you said like that brave new world uh, 1984 sure. type of space because yeah that's the one thing that they didn't really bring attention to in the movie but I guess the movie's actually set in the year 1984 because I think they, oh. yeah, they do a throwaway line where it's like uh, when uh, Professor Nosferatu was like exiled from the Outlands, it was 1964, yeah. which is like, mm-hmm. I guess, an er- a year earlier than the film was made. But yeah, it's actually set in 1984, which is mm. fitting. Um, yeah. So I guess, like, yeah, going back to the uh, Eddie Con- or uh, the Eddie Constantine Let Me Caution thing, um, yep. uh, the, the, the Wikipedia thing has a. <laughs> Funny bit here. Uh, so yeah, in Alpha Villain 65, in this film, he appeared as a tired, elderly, gloomy-looking man due to Jean-Luc Godard not allowing Constantine to wear makeup in harshly lit scenes. Because you really notice, like, his face is craggy and scarred up. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, he's wearing the kind of trench coat associated with, like, Humphrey Bogart, looking as if he was spaced mm-hmm. out and lost in a future world. Uh, Godard's subversion of the Lemmy Caution stereotype effectively shattered Constantine's connection with the character. He was never again offered a Lemmy Caution role and reportedly said that he was shunned by producers after Alphaville was released. So hmm. uh, we have him saying that this film effectively uh, damaged his career. Ruined his career. Hooray. Oh, that's too bad. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I guess like, yeah, too, I mean, uh, talking about Godard, I'll kind of talk about uh, but yeah, the biography of what was kind of going on in Jean-Luc Godard's personal life was, so uh, Godard was like married to Anna Karina, uh in like by like 1961. Um, but I guess like, uh, they were divorced like right before this movie went into production, even though, and like Anna Karina mm-hmm. would like actually be on like about three or four more movies with Godard after this. But, uh, I was reading about her personal life and it's kind of weird and uncomfortable. 
like with watching this movie is like so yeah they got married and then i guess they had like conceived a baby but she miscarried and this became uh quite the like i don't know, turning point for the relationship i guess like even leading to her like uh attempting suicide mm-hmm. um and i guess like their relationship just wasn't going to work because uh Godard, like, I don't know. He obviously really is into her a lot. Like, just the way he shoots her in all his movies. Like, he, like, really, really loves looking at her. Um, But I guess, like, I mean, if you look at how many movies he made in the period of time that they were married, like, he made, like, nine feature films. So uh, he wasn't probably the most attentive of uh, partners that you could have. Um, And also, uh, another thing to throw out there is this is the movie that he went and made instead of making Bonnie and Clyde. Because uh, back mm. in the 1964, uh, I guess like th- that's the, the the idea of making Bonnie and Clyde a movie was in the air, and uh, Francois Truffaut was initially a uh, uh, approached to do it, but he he just it wasn't going to work, and he was going to go make Fahrenheit 451 instead, and so it was passed on to Godard, mm-hmm. which I guess like the writers were super stoked about, but then Godard was like, yeah, cool, that sounds great, uh, I'm gonna go back to France and let me know when production starts, because if he thought it was like one of those things that was going to happen immediately, but it just like never happened, and then Warren right. Beatty got involved, and Warren Beatty had like one meeting with John Luke Godard, and that it just that was the end of it but mm. i think in like all honesty it probably worked out for the best like i don't yeah. know what uh american john luke godard uh bonnie and clyde would have looked like um i don't i think it could have like yeah. really changed uh could have changed film history that's for sure <laughs> mm. i don't know well we'll never know because he's dead he's, who's that aren't isn't Godard dead? Is he no, still alive? he's still alive and well. As what? Is, yeah. Warren Beatty's still alive too. He is. They're all alive. So surprisingly, considering how many people have died uh, this year, they are yeah. still with us. Yeah, well, isn't Warren Beatty like 180 years old? Something like that. Hmm. Yeah, well, no, uh, John luc Godard's still making movies. Well, shit. And he's, I guess and you... He's, uh, uh, he's 85. Well, yeah. I guess you showed me. Yeah, RJ. I, I'm usually safe to just say people are dead whenever we watch the black and white. This is very true. So uh, you caught me. No, I don't do. I don't do any research. <sighs> that's okay. That's what I'm here for. Well, that's yeah. I was gonna say nobody ever thought I was here yeah. for real facts. Um. So yeah. Sorry. Uh. We kind of went on a tangent there. You were going through the things that you liked, like let me caution and action scenes. Uh, well, I'm not even thinking about considering finishing now. Oh. Um, I might leave the show for good. No. Okay. Uh, no. Um, yeah. So let me caution. It's super cool. Uh, I like how in that one scene, he just hides behind the uh, wardrobe clo- or the closet door as if like he's not there. <laughs> but then but then he like takes pictures that like the flash is really li- bright. And then when the guy like dies, he's like there. But that girl's like, whatever. And you're just like, yeah, I like this. This is the way things should be. <laughs> um, I think uh, that the the movie theaters in this movie should be brought back now and implemented. Like when uh, we gas people and dump them. <laughs> and dump them. Yeah. Well, it's like, remember when AMC was going to do that thing where they were going to allow people to be like texting on their phones yep. during movies? Yep. You do that. Oh. But then as soon as the theater's full, then the, uh, you gas them and then the, the theater seats just recline and just dump them into a huge bin. Now that is a grade A idea. 
Um, I guess there goes my credibility again. Mm-hmm. Uh, doesn't matter. I never really had any. Yeah. Um, I was going to tell you that I too am a class three seductress. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think you already knew that, but I think it just, it, it goes, it's good to say those things sometimes. Um, and there was just, I think there was one other thing I was going to say. Uh, there's a line in this I really I like where, um, I thought it was super relevant and topical for me finishing my uh, grad school right now. Um, and I can't remember who it is, but they go, you never understand anything and it ends in death. And I was like, you tell you tell them, sister. That's exactly how I feel. So just uh, cheery things for everyone, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I don't know. It's, it's, a, it's a really cool movie. I like it. Um, it's like I said, I think I'll probably have to watch it again before I can fully like appreciate it the way it might need to be. But uh, I understand the themes. I get the story. There's just certain parts in there that I'm – I get lost. And it's not because of the movie. It's just maybe I'm just a big dumb idiot. No, I, don't um, I think there's like something to be said about like uh, re-watching this movie because like, like I mentioned before um, – I, I I don't I watched this movie a second time because I watched it early last week and kind of did all my notes and stuff like that and then I read a whole bunch more about it and Godard and stuff and um, I just like thought like I need to watch that movie again because it seemed like it was starting to get like vague like vague in my mind and I watched it again and I actually liked it a lot more watching it the second time because it seemed yep. like I had got the general sense of everything like so when I watched it I wasn't like didn't know what to expect, even though, like I said, it's been years since I watched it the very first time. But, uh, right. so it was kind of, uh, I think, uh, really important to watch this movie, I think more than once. And it got me thinking about like, I don't know, just like how people consume culture now. Like, um, I don't know with like things like letterbox, I'm always thinking about how I'm, I'm watching, one movie and then I'm like getting out of the way, tossing it aside and getting onto the next movie. Mm-hmm. And I never really go back and watch anything. Um, and I think about like this era that this movie was made in. And like, uh, I think of like uh, when Truffaut was talking about uh, Lady Vanishes, uh, which I brought up many episodes ago, he like watched like Lady Vanishes, like what, five, six times a week or something like that while I was in revival. Yeah, that's so, crazy. Which is like, yeah, like for like people to do that now, I mean, like I remember doing that when I was like in junior high and high school because I only had like, you know, 12 videotapes and I would just watch the same movie over and over and over again. And uh, that was as close to it as I guess is like we would get to like having a revival theater where you'd have like a big movie play and you would just go down and watch it. And there's something too about like imagining watching like Alphaville on the big screen. And, like, imagining how that experience would be and, like, the things you would notice. um, And, yeah, it's just, like, uh, I I, I have nostalgia for an era that I never lived in. (laughs) This idea of, like, watching a movie many times over because, Mm -hmm. like, if you don't go see it, like, in revival or in those periods of time, it was just gone. Um, And so, like, there's this thing where it's, like, well, now, like, everything that's ever been made is basically at our fingertips more so than ever before. And how that's kind of, like, damning because... Mm -hmm. Uh, there's too many options. It's like the tyranny of freedom. <laughs> um, yeah. And like, I was, I was really thinking about that, like this last couple of days and just how much I enjoyed watching this movie, like a second time. Um, 
and just like kind of picking up on things I didn't notice before or like certain things like I just like I didn't even notice a certain scene I'm like oh that's what was going on like him driving in this car and like being in the train and like I just didn't put those scenes together the first time I just kind of viewed them as like atmosphere or texture at the time but it's like oh no those shots are all there for a purpose but you miss that completely in the first viewing Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's funny. Uh, I posted that I had watched this movie and uh, a friend of mine, she made some comment about how, like, I was just thinking about that movie the other day. And I thought to myself, huh, I don't remember anything about that movie. And I'm like, yeah, like, I I mean, I watched this movie last week and I didn't remember anything about it until I watched it again. And there's something about the intangibility of, like, how, uh, like, those these weird decisions these things that you describe as unique um like how they um i don't know they don't linger in the mind the way that like movies that we expect movies to operate should like they have like Mm -hmm. certain like i don't know everything has a certain like dramatic build to it um and those are the movies that everyone kind of likes like you look on letterbox and it's like the same like kind of like 100 200 movies always rise to the top and they're all kind of essentially the same type of movie um like they all like feel the same they all kind of like do the same things right i guess Mm -hmm. or in a way that people always respond to and i guess that's like the thing is like these movies are kind of designed when they're done well to be like commercially uh successful and i don't think like godard gave a shit about that whatsoever like he was just like really into figuring out film as its own kind of medium and like thinking about possibilities and like um like for instance like with this this movie didn't have a screenplay it was like improvised. Um, like seriously. Only, yeah. So like, yeah, the way that it worked, I guess was, uh, as they were like, they basically wrote, somebody wrote a script for it just so they could get funding. And then none of that actually hmm. mattered. Like everything was kind of decided on the fly. Like they would just be like, all right, we're doing this today. And this is how the scene's going to play out. Um, but there's like no actual script. It was just like, no, you're going to yeah. do the, you're going to do the scenes. Here's some guidance. Like he just made it up on the fly and that's how he worked. And he like, that's kind of the, the Godard thing. Like all the scenes like play like that. Um, and so there's like, I can only imagine like going back and editing something like that and mm-hmm. like trying to make it work and trying to f- make a structure of like total looseness. Like, cause mm-hmm. even like, there's like, even like i mean he's got he has an amazing cinematographer that he worked with like basically for the first uh like basically all his classic films up till weekend all they're all uh what's his Mm -hmm. name raul uh canard catard and like that guy's amazing um like these this movie like looks great um we watched uh the dvd of it and uh it still like looks fairly nice um i Mm rewatched the uh breathless um, yep. in my preparation for this. And I only have the old Kino Lorber DVD of this movie of, of breathless and mm-hmm. it's horrendous. Like it's so bad Aww. looking. It's just gray throughout. And I don't know. I think it probably did impact my viewing of it. Cause the first time I watched breathless, I thought breathless was like one of the best movies I'd ever seen. Mm. Um, and then uh, it's, and I think I remember and I was like on VHS and then I bought this DVD and I tried watching it like several years ago and I kind of thought it was like kind of boring. Um, and then I was like, oh, that's weird. I really liked that movie a lot the first time. And then watching it again, like just a few days ago, I was like, oh, I don't know. Like the, the, the picture was so bad. I kept like looking at how just like completely gray, like there's no whites in the transfer. Even the blacks are like dark gray. So it's a really shitty looking DVD. I really, I need to get the Criterion Blu-ray of it, I think, and probably watch it again. <laughs> I, I actually have that. Oh really? That's one I that's one I actually own. So whenever we get to Breathless, you can uh you can borrow my copy. Yeah, that's uh that's a spine that's number a good... 408 or something like that. So Oh, we'll be up there like in a week or two, no. Yeah, no no problem.
problem there. Um, no, uh, can I was gonna say really quick uh, the like improvised format. Um, uh, apparently, that's what Taren- Terrence Malick has been doing with his new movies. I don't know if you you knew about that. Like, I guess because he didn't make any movies for like he made like one movie every 10 years and then the last like five years he's got like six coming out or something but oh. it's because i guess he was filming for a really long time and i uh i read an interview with antonio banderas where he was like he's like there was no script i would just i'd be on set and then terrence malick would come and he'd be like uh okay you're this is the scene there's an old lady out in this field in this scenario you are her, you are her son go talk to her and he was like, uh, okay. So he would go do it and you would just like improvise. And then he would come back and be like, okay, in this scene, you have never met this lady. She is a weirdo. Go do this scene. And he'd be like, all right. So like, t- I guess Terrence Malick is just kind of implementing that same thing where it's just like, all right, this is what's going on. But he like does a bunch of different, like a bunch of different options and then i don't know does he edit his own stuff because as you were saying earlier that might be a nightmare i'm i'm positive like i mean i'll look it up right now because i'm not sure if he's i've always assumed that he edited his own work um like he was like like when he talked about stuff i mean he talked about like the art of like montage and editing and like how scenes work together and stuff like that so i imagine he was probably fairly hands-on but we're going to confirm or deny this. And I mean, he had an assistant director and stuff like that. It's not like, uh, yeah. Sure. Agnes Guilmont, uh, was his mm-hmm. editor and it looks like I'm assuming Agnes is a, she, um, she worked with him on like all that, like principle, all that early stuff of his, uh, Vivra Seville, contempt mm-hmm. band of outsiders, Alphaville weekend made in the USA, uh, made in USA. Yeah. So, I mean, you, you work with an editor, but I imagine that he was there like a hawk watching over everything. Mm-hmm. Oh, well, yeah. Here's the thing like, about isn't... the screenplay. <laughs> oh, I'll, I'll read oh, this okay. little the thing about the screenplay real quick. So, yeah, like most sure. of Godard's films, the performances and dialogue in Alphaville were substantially improvised. Assistant director Charles Beach recalled that even when production commenced, he had no idea what Godard was planning to do. Godard's first act was to ask Beach to write a screenplay, saying that producer uh, Micheline had been pestering him for a script because he needed it to help raise finance from bankers in Germany where Constantine was popular. Bitch protested that he had never read a Lemmy caution book but Godard simply said read one and then write it. Uh, Bitch wrote mm-hmm. a caution book then wrote a 30 page treatment and brought it to Godard who said okay fine and took it without even looking at it. It was then given to Michelin who uh, was pleased with the result and the script was duly translated into German and sent off to backers. In fact none of it even reached the screen and according to Bitch the German backers later asked Michelin to repay the money when the saw the completed film uh okay so, yeah that can backfire i guess too i guess yeah well i guess they they just didn't have the cojones that he did i uh, know i guess not um there's like one shot in this movie uh that really impresses me too it's like the elevator shot that happens when um caution like first walks into the uh hotel and he walks onto like that glass elevator and then like he just goes up and the camera goes up with him and mm-hmm. the first time i watched him like how the hell did they do that like were they just standing on the outside of the elevator on some rigging but no like when i watched it again uh it became really obvious what it was, was there's two elevators side by side and they just walked into the other one beside it and they just filmed them through hmm. the glass 
And That's like, pretty cool. Yeah, it's it's I don't know impressed me I guess. Um, but yeah, I guess like it took a lot of uh, takes to get that because the elevators would like go up in in and out of sync, and they needed to do it so they were obviously as close to on level as they can. And you can actually see when you watch mm. the movie the camera like the elevators do kind of pull away from one another, but it has to shift a little bit to keep him at the same right. spot. But movie right. magic, RJ. I guess. I mean, it's not something I know, but what do I know? I don't know. Nothing. That's um, what. Yeah. So uh, anything else you want to say before I ramble off a bunch of stuff? Uh, no, but if you're going to ramble, I better get prepared. All right. Lay it on me, baby. All right. Well, these are just more of my uh, general viewing notes. Um, I love the title card of this movie where it just like mm-hmm. offhandedly just gets dumped on you. Beautiful black and white font on black. It's great looking. Dumping. Uh, yep. Yeah. The graphic quality. Uh, yeah, I mentioned already, uh, the cinematographer, Raul mm-hmm. Cotard. Um, yeah, he's amazing. Uh, what did you think of the, uh, the narration, the, uh, Alpha 60 voice? That was awesome. Did you know what that yep. is? So, I actually looked it up. Okay, but uh, you you tell me because okay. you did a lot of research. For okay, this one. well, RJ, uh, Mister No Research, secretly you do, but yeah, uh, the voice box is a result of a man who legitimately uses a voice decoder, a la Kane from WWE. Uh, and yeah, so it was a man with a voice modulator who had been mm-hmm. like, after being egregiously injured, uh, during, I guess, world war two or world war one. Uh, yeah, he had, he learned to speak from the diaphragm. So you get the horrendous voice. <laughs> and, it, and I think the worst part of that sound is like, it's so blaring and like, kind of like, yeah. o- like over, like intentionally kind of like over and the track and you can hear, yeah. you can hear the swallowing. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, it's just like eat to Lord. Eat to Lord, and you're like, oh God, that's uncomfortable. Uh, yeah, I thought it was from a smoking thing. I didn't realize it was an actual physical injury. So that's yes. sad. Yeah, from a vet. Uh, who like, uh, I don't know. I don't. Yeah. I don't see a name ever thrown out for who this person was, with like the great uh, pipes. I think it was Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Oh, time traveling again. Yeah. Well, what else is he doing? He's retired from b-ball. No, <laughs> baby. You can travel time and show up in French New Wave movies. Why not? Yep. Just for uh, fun. Oh yeah, my uh, my favorite quote from this film is mm. "All things weird are normal in this whore of cities." This whore of cities. Yeah. That's what you liked, wasn't it? Yeah. Um. Yeah. There's some math geek references uh, littering mm-hmm. this film. Talking about I don't know math stuff. And then, uh, yeah, the, yeah, the Heisenberg principle, or not that. The, there was a character named Heisenberg, and yeah. that's, I remember that from Contact. They were talking about <laughs> Heisenberg principles and math and numbers. Mm-hmm. Pretty cool. Yeah, and you get like Nosferatu, Dick Tracy getting dropped. Mm-hmm. No. Uh, yep, I know I already mentioned the aquatic execution squads. Ooh, the erotic execution no. squads is more like. Hmm. So I've, I've got one to throw out to you. What, what do you think of uh, the the representation of women in this movie? Uh, that they're slaves? Well, no, they're not just slaves. I, they're, they're well, all... <laughs> I took it as somewhat equal because it seemed like other people were also slaves. But I guess the men weren't seductresses. Yeah, they're, they're not seductresses, unlike you. 
yeah, I w- yeah, unlike me. I would say it's pretty much the same as it is in real life, right? Men treat <laughs> like you know, you know what I mean. Yeah. It's like women get downgraded to seductresses. Well, that's just how it is. <laughs> well, that's the thing that like when I was watching this uh through the second time, I was like noticing, oh yeah, slapping the women around and then like when yeah. he uh shoots out the tits of the pinup girl in the magazine like right at the beginning of the movie uh yeah and then like all the women in it are just like their seductresses reduced for male pleasure Mm -hmm. but then i always wonder i'm like well how great is it to be a man in this world and it doesn't really matter because your mind's wiped anyway yeah so i don't know it's something i'm gonna have to think about some more with uh godard because there's a little bit of that probably in all his stuff so i don't know Mm -hmm. if that's just like typically sexist 60s filmmaking stuff that people will overlook um, I don't know. Or if it was clever satire. Oh, maybe. Yeah, I read some people kind of throwing out that. Uh, it's like, well, he's satirizing uh, Hollywood because he loved Hollywood movies at the time. I'm like, yeah. Mm. But he left that in too, I guess, whatever you want to say about it. Yeah. Um, there's this like weird uh, read of this movie you could have too because like when you think about like the Anna Karina divorce that was like had happened already and like the fact that, I mean, obviously he probably still wanted to be in a relationship with her and this whole idea that he has this character where she's playing it and she doesn't understand what the word love means and mm-hmm. like all that he wants is for his like ex-wife to learn like what love is and to say I yep. love you. It's kind of odd. <laughs> Yeah, it's a little bit weird, but I mean, who am I to judge? <laughs> exactly. Did you say egg exactly? Exactly. You got egg brain, bro- brother? I don't know what that means. Um, well, I'll tell you a different day about how about eggs. Okay. On the egg episode of uh, the Criterion Creeps. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Uh, already, we already mentioned the theater dumping scene. Uh, so cool. Yeah, it's like between the, yeah, that and the like uh, synchronized swimming death squad mm-hmm. uh, bit. Those are like both really strange, striking moments in this. Mm-hmm. Uh, I um I really like the presentation of the theater scene, and I think it's one of those things where it's like I I always hear about in movies or in TV where uh, they're not allowed to actually show what they want to show so they it's like centered in some way so they have to like get around it where it's like if they want to show a guy being like uh hung they can't show that but they show the shadow of it and then like what they have to like do the runaround to show is actually a lot more effective and a lot more like it's got a lot more weight to it than like actually showing the the thing so i thought the presentation of the theater scene was the same kind of thing where it's like there's not actually people in there but it's just like you see that slow kind of thing and you you discover what's happening. Like I thought that was awesome. Yeah. I don't know. Well, I mean, I, I, think, I think that's exactly how he would have wanted to do it though. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, like uh, I, I figure that is what it is. But um, I don't know. I always, uh, I always hear about that in movies where it's like uh, certain scenes that I've always liked. And then I, I read into it more and it's like, well, yeah, they did that because uh, – censorship people i don't know fca who cares the the censorship people they're like oh no you can't do that so they got to do something else and it usually improves the situation mm-hmm. you know what i mean babe? Uh, I, I think i do uh yeah and then like yeah there's like the whole thing i kind of mentioned i think earlier was like just like that post-war paris thing where like mm-hmm. it was like that modern architecture um it's like it was a thing that like other uh, filmmakers in france were doing too uh there's uh, jacques tati's uh playtime 
And like even mm-hmm. like in the seventies, there's like the one uh, Jean Rolon movie, uh, Night of the Hunted, which is like using like these like weird uh, like modernist buildings to like I don't know like the idea is that these things conceal like horrible experiments being done psychologically to people. Um, yeah. And like it's something that's like I I keep always like, these weird clinical institution things. And like this movie like kind of it doesn't do it super strong, but I mean like there's like bits mm-hmm. where, like where the character like Lemmy Caution is being kind of brought through these long hallways and corridors, and there's just like people in suits kind of coming and going, and you have no idea what anyone does. Yeah. Um, and yeah, like I've always like it's such a great uh, imagery. Like I mean, it goes back to like even like Kafka books and stuff like that about bureaucracies mm-hmm. and. The horrible yep. state of uh, the twentieth century uh, ennui, <laughs> if you <laughs> the ennui, 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 all day. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. So yeah, yeah uh, that that like it, it works really well. I mean, it kind mm-hmm. of works as sort of like a strange sci-fi movie. Yeah, it does. Even though it's like, nope, that's just like it is now. Um, yeah, the other thing too that I was reading about was like this movie was shot with a like this like kind of new low light film stock, and so mm. I guess that like for a lot of this movie they had no idea if anything they were shooting was going to work until they developed it, uh, which is why this movie's also got kind of a unique uh, look to it because a lot of it's shot in the darkness and at night. Yeah. Um, and that's why you get those weird things where like the exposures are kind of being played with, which actually work mm-hmm. really well. Um, and, uh, yeah, but apparently like yeah, thousands of feet of film were thrown out because they were completely unusable. Uh, they didn't learn. Cause there's like the bit, like right at the end, like, uh, with, uh, let me cautions, like kind of final confrontation with, uh, professor mm-hmm. Von Brown. And it's like so dark in the, like, I don't know, whatever it is, the, uh, processing unit room or something like that. And it's just like, why is this so dark? And it's like, oh, that's mm-hmm. why, because they shot it this way and they didn't know it worked. And this is probably the only usable footage they had to like communicate the end of the movie, the climax. So, right. Yeah. I'll give you a climax. Mm hmm. Um, anyway. <laughs> Some in- intelligent conversation yeah. for you. Yeah. You bring a lot to the table, my friend. I sure do. Uh, so uh, another movie that I actually watched as a companion piece to this. So I watched some Godards. I watched uh, Band of Outsiders again. Watched Breathless. Yeah. Um, I also checked out Blade Runner, which I hadn't watched for years. How is uh, that related? You don't you don't think it's immediately obvious? <laughs> it, because it because is. It's weirdly there's like weird because connections of robot to it. Future? Kind of. I mean, there's like definitely um, like the ending of the movie is like almost exact. It's like mm. that you have Harrison Ford running away with Sean Young as your uh, Anna Karina stand in and like they're on the run kind of thing uh, away from horrible dystopic future. Um, yeah. And then like, I don't, if you've, I don't know if you've ever read like the actual novel, uh, Do I Electric have? Sheep. Okay. Well, like that movie's got the outland too in it. Right. And so yep. you have like sort of like, yeah, your dystopic world and uh, kind of a, I don't know, law enforcement agent. Uh, mm-hmm. But it's kind of a flipped around thing where actually robots are more human and have more desire to live than the humans do. Correct. So it's kind of a flip around around that. And it's just like, yeah, it's like kind of like the future noir kind of thing, trench coat wearing uh, man, packing a gun, going around uh, without any care for anyone's mm-hmm. well-being the love interest is there like i didn't even think about this when i yeah. watched blade runner though because i happened to want to watch it because i just had just watched blood simple with m emmett walsh and i thought m emmett walsh is in blade runner i haven't watched blade runner in years and mm-hmm. then i watched blade runner and then i was like thinking back to alphaville i'm like oh yeah no it's like all part of the same kind of lineage like i'd say like alphaville is probably right. the first like future noir story 
mm-hmm. but it doesn't play at all the way that people who are really into those movies like. So I yeah. don't think Alphaville is an obvious like thing to think about with mm-hmm. it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. I, I, I get what you're saying. I just looked it up. And Alpha, I'm sure you already knew this, but uh, I guess Alphaville came out three years before Blade Runner. So, did you just say that? Wait, what? <laughs> the novel. The novel. The novel, yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, the novel was published in 1968, and Alphaville came out in 1965. Okay. So, I don't know if uh, old uh, PKD had access to French New Wave in America in the 60s. I don't know how. Uh, he would have, like, it's possible that he would have watched it. And I mean, he, he was kind of like a, a recluse, though. Like, Yeah, I mean, I don't know he, if he watched movies. <laughs> I don't know. Well, I just mean, like, I don't think he got out very often. And I imagine in the 60s, like, if you wanted to see something like that, you'd have to go actively yeah. actively go out to find it. Yeah. Well, so, uh, like, I know he stayed in his house with his cats because he had a lot of, like, personal things well i mean yeah i mean he probably didn't he probably had no idea about anything with alphaville but i imagine that really yeah. scott probably did and, yeah okay and, and so that would be like more like the movie connection rather than the the novel because they're very different beasts i remember Correct. my uh my language arts teacher back in junior high he always uh he loved the movie but i remember i was reading the book and he's like oh i don't like that book at all and what was, an asshole what a dick yeah yeah what an asshole mm-hmm. hey so do you want to hear a hot take from a academic? No. Okay. Uh, what can you clarify as to what this person is an academic of? Uh, well, uh, he is named David Sterrett. He wrote a book on John Luc Godard called "The Films of John Luc Godard: Seeing the Invisible." And he actually uses Alphaville mm. as an example of Godard's, quote, fundamental stance toward the influence of entertainment, diversion, and spectacle on everyday social and political life. Hmm. Continue. The pool execution scene and the theater mass dumping thing. Why run with those? Jarring, jolting, and generally shaking up the audience. The desire to portray our world is unfamiliar that's, or in unfamiliar ways that stimulate active thought rather than passive emotionalism. So here's like that was me kind of just running a couple mm-hmm. notes. But this is actually what he wrote here. So the computer Alpha 60, technology can deaden thought and feeling like through somas and that materialism can stifle Mm -hmm. love and compassion. Obviously high tech pitfalls like technology materialism are not just fictional devices in a fantastical tale, but regrettably real tendencies in our modern world and mass media communications, including movies like Alphaville have played an important part in forming that world. Herein lies a contradiction that has fascinated Godard ever since he began thinking seriously about cinema. Film technology permits true artists to create aesthetically profound works that can stir us to the depths of our souls. Yet the same technology, has an uncanny knack for seducing us with shallow imitations of genuine thought and feeling, all in the service of society's acquisitive and materialistic instincts. And hmm. if, I can continue. <laughs> if you would like to. Sure, why not? Uh, Godard's yeah. response to this contradiction has been to draw on cinema's best possibilities while turning its worst impulses against it, attempting to subdue the beast even as he enjoys riding out, one might say. Uh, Alphaville thus sets itself up as a science fiction thriller, uh, as its subtitle is A Strange Adventure of Lemmy Caution, with a linear mm-hmm. story, psychologically real characters, and enticing images. At the same time, by delving into Hollywood's bag of tricks to assemble this clever entertainment, Godard knows he is in danger of promoting a set of 
traditional movie values that he deeply opposes, voyeuristic spectatorship as opposed to critical thinking, vicarious mm-hmm. problem-solving as opposed to engagement with reality, passive consumption as opposed to active dialogue with the movie's ideas. Deftly skirting these traps, he proceeds to undermine the conventions that give rise to them, fragmenting the story, and stylizing the visuals so flamboyantly freezing a kinetic fistfight into a series of motionless shots that they lose their ability to lull the audience into his accustomed state of receptive daydreaming. This is a risky maneuver, and Alphaville has come in for scathing attacks from viewers who resist, reject, or simply fail to understand its approach. Others Mm. have welcomed it with enthusiasm, however, finding traditional pleasure in its conventions that survive Godard's manipulations, as well as innovative pleasure in the ingenious method he devises for casting these conventions into unlikely new forms. Yeah, I agree. I agree with all of the things that you have said just now. Thanks, David Sterrett. <laughs> yes, it is almost as if I I wrote the book myself. <laughs> Kinetic action. Yeah. You're you're so right, baby. No, that I I do actually agree with that stuff. Nice. Pretty interesting. <laughs> Pretty interesting, man. Yeah, the books are cool, RJ. <laughs> that's that's what book learning will get you. Mm-hmm. Uh, I saw there was two other books that you had checked out on Goddard. Did you learn anything from those ones as well? Well, yeah. So that was the David Sterrett book. The other one is, uh, I think, Everything is Cinema by uh, mm-hmm. uh, by uh, Richard Brody, the New Yorker film critic, uh, sure. who has some funny words on horror films that I, I think I posted <gasps> somewhere along the line. I can't remember what they were, but they always made me chuckle. Um mm-hmm. And then the other one actually wasn't that good. I, I can't remember what it was called. Oh. I, I returned that one right away after I looked through it. I went, wait, this doesn't have anything that I need that I this can't get off of my any... good. That Nothing I can get, can't get off of Wikipedia. Yeah. This book has zero pictures at all. Mm-hmm. What a crock of shit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, well, you know, so, you know, RJ, I yes. was fully expecting you to, like, really hate this movie. I don't know why. No, I... Uh because it was weird yeah maybe uh no i didn't hate this movie i thought it was good it's it's just like i said like um i enjoyed it because i do like your film noir and science fiction yeah so uh, a blend of those sounds ideal for me um no i liked it i thought it looked good i liked the story i just as i said i don't think i got the whole thing so it kind of so, like the uh the Godardian flourishes kind of sure left you more like What's this all about? Yeah, but uh, yeah, kind of. But I don't hold that against the film because I'm not I'm not a grade A, a jerk. Oh, so like other people who may have, I'm sure later when you're reading people who hated this movie who maybe don't get it and for that reason hate it. Oh, I don't know. I'm sure there's books I've said that I don't understand that I also <laughs> hate. So or not books, movies, whatever. Right. I'm the grade A hypocrite on this show. Mm-hmm. So as long as I sub, as long as I feel some service, that's all that matters. Great. Well, you mentioned it. So who hates this movie, RJ? Good question. Well, uh, I think this is like a regular contributor on our show, Fat oh. Pie Forty Two. Oh no! I, I think I've, I've I've seen that name appear before. Uh, yeah. He gave this bad boy half a star. Mm. Uh, there is a Kafka-esque feel to things here. 
The protagonist regularly seems to have to kill people just as a matter of course. He drifts through various mm. absurd scenarios with certain female figures openly announcing that they are spies. All through the movie, there's this kind of all-controlling supercomputer Big Brother voice that not only controls the whole of Alphaville in which the film takes place, but actually narrates the film. Perhaps my dislike of this movie comes down to not having the right sense of humor. However, if this is supposed to be a serious movie, then that really is a joke. Oh, come on. <laughs> I really, I, I think I reckon, I remember this guy, and I just feel like, I don't know. I think he misses the point of what movies are. Yeah, I, 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 like, I have to go back to my notes to figure out what he didn't like as well, but I don't know. People always just like have these things that like I don't even see like what you you don't really ever say what you dislike. You like here's the plot synopsis, and I d- yeah. I thought this movie sucked, but I'm not going to actually say anything about why. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I hate that. It's like yeah, I know what the movie synopsis is. I watched the fucking thing. Yeah, uh, from JTO one 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 and a half star, mm-hmm. Jean Luc Godard's worst film. There is a very thin line between genius and pretentious when it comes to Godard's films, and I'm afraid this movie falls into the latter. People, that's the one thing. People always say, oh, I'm afraid to say that this is the problem. <laughs> yeah, like, what, what does that mean? His attempt to make a sci-fi with his own auteur touches falls flat, and by halfway through, you're pleading for the philosophical waffle to stop. A poor film by a great director. A philosophical waffle. Yes. Do you think he means a literal waffle or like waffling like it's in and out? Uh, I don't care. I'm going to go with the literal waffle. Yeah. They're going to start serving those at the waffle window. Yeah. Literal waffles coming for you. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Nathan Walters, he also gave this film one and a Mm. half star. Godard spends way too much time trying to explain his sci-fi world instead of merely letting it come to life. The acting and directing seem extremely weak, and so much of the film feels awkwardly unnatural, like the actors pushing the hanging light bulb. It's laughable. Having watched this in 2015, what they imagine the future would be like, Anna Karina brings a new nice performance, though. Yeah? I... Okay. <laughs> what, he didn't like uh, Patty Constantine? Because I thought he was pretty good. <laughs> Our good friend Patty Constantine. Is that not his name? Eddie. <laughs> oh, who am I thinking of? Uh, I'm is gonna... there a Patty Constantine? Well, in real there, life? There's like a Patty. Yeah, there's like a Patty, uh, like Chavetsky. Patty Considine. Considine. Uh, he's an actor. He's an Englishman, but it's like Considine. It's hey, a... I fig- I figured it out. Yeah. I, I know who it is. I, I just sent it to you. Oh. That's who I'm thinking of, and it's actually what you just said. So never mind. Paddy Constantine. Yeah, he's that Edgar Wright guy. Oh, Edgar Wright guy. Well, he's in Edgar Wright movies. Well, he was in one. He was in Hot Fuzz. Oh, okay. So I don't know if he was in any others. I don't remember that feller. That doesn't matter. Yeah. English people. Weird. <laughs> All right. Am I right? You're so glad that I'm uh, on this show with you. I'm not. You yeah. don't. You don't regret it at all. I don't know these voices. I don't know what's up with that. With what? The, the, the voices. Like in your head, or? Yep. Just do what they say. Uh oh, and uh, here we go. One more. Serhiel Prostakov, two stars. What a waste. Oh. Well, at least he was like 
succinct. Like he, he gets to the point, I guess. So that's mm-hmm. good. Hmm. Yeah. So sad. Sad. Yep. Yep. Well, I think that's that. That's that mattress, man. Mm-hmm. Um, well, folks, after the break, we're going to talk about, I don't know, uh, love, and maybe love will save us all. Love and poetry? Yeah. That's oh, nice. That is nice. RJ, are you rushing to watch more Godard films? No. No. <laughs> but even, uh, even I, the one, even the one that you own. No, I'm open to it. Though. Okay. Yeah. Uh, no, I think that guy's okay. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm interested to see what he has coming down the pipe. Our listener uh, Joshua, he uh, was very excited that we were going to be talking about Godard. Ah, oh, big Godard fan, huh? Yes, he is. I think he was a little oh. bummed out that I didn't have the the immense love for uh, Breathless that he has. Yeah, um, I was a little surprised by that because uh, I have heard equally good things about that movie. Yeah. However, I know a guy who knows a guy who just watched it and also did not was in the middle of the road like you. Mm, I don't know. So maybe it, there's something there to it. I, I think for a first film, it's fine, but uh, I think he makes better movies as time goes on. And we will find that out as our Criterion Creep continues. And Correct. hey, you can follow us on Twitter at Criterion Creeps to find out when those Criterion Creeps are coming. Usually they're just mm-hmm. on Wednesdays. Uh, you can email oh, us at CriterionCreeps at gmail.com. Uh, mm-hmm. We've got a Facebook page. We are on Instagram. We're on the Letterboxd. I'm Jared Duncan. He's Barnloaf. You can follow us and share us. We're on SoundCloud, Stitcher, iTunes, subscribe, rate, all that stuff. Mm-hmm. And hey, RJ, spine yes. number 26 is coming up. What is it? What is it? You don't even know. <laughs> I, I honestly don't know. We, I know the two after. Yeah, well, we are going to uh, England. And we're going to be watching John McKenzie's Good, Long Good Friday, starring one... Mario, also known as Bob Hoskins, Shmi from Hook, mm-hmm. and uh, the lovely uh, Helen Mirren in her prime. Ooh. Yeah, yeah, Helen Mirren is lovely, and I believe uh, even uh, Pierce Brosnan is going to make an appearance. I don't care about him, 
but I do like Bob Hoskins. Maybe I'll watch Roger Rabbit this week. For there prep. you do some prep. That's that's doing research, my friend. Yeah. Nah, I won't do that then. Awesome. <laughs> I'm so good at this thing that we do. Yeah, you just say things. It's good for the podcast format, I guess. Well, people might like it. Who knows? Uh, Nobody's emailed in saying they don't. So, uh, Well, folks, let us know if you hate RJ just saying stupid shit sometimes while drinking beers right now. There you go. I'm doing so good. Well, good night, folks. Uh, see ya. <laughs>